Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. All good martinis today. So we have that to look forward to. Two of them related to the Democrats' ongoing difficulty finding any sort of intra-party consensus on reconciliation. And hey, the longer that takes to play out, the more we're happy to talk about it. But uh, let's start with a good martini that comes from another Democrat, and that's Larry Summers. He was Treasury Secretary for a while in the second four years of the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, He has spent a lot of his time since then up at Harvard University. And every once in a while, he'll say things that make liberals really angry. And I'm guessing this will probably be one. Uh, Washington Times with the story, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers' criticism that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are too focused on woke, and that's his word, woke social issues reflects a growing concern that policymakers aren't paying enough attention to inflation. Mr. Summers, a Democrat, is arguing his point as Senate Republicans try to prevent congressional Democrats and President Biden from pressuring the Fed to install regional directors who would devote some of their duties to climate change and racial equity. The Republicans described the move as a dangerous case of mission creep from the central bank's traditional role of ensuring maximum employment and price stability. All 12 Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee uh, fired off a a warning shot this month at the Fed's regional offices in Boston and Dallas, which are seeking new presidents. But of course, you know, the administration is not going to pay a lot of attention to Senate Banking Committee Republicans. But Larry Summers, as a Democrat, getting a little more attention, uh, he sounded the alarm this month while speaking to a virtual conference organized by the Institute of International Finance. Quote, we have a generation of central bankers who are defining themselves by their wokeness, said Mr. Summers. They're defining themselves by how socially concerned they are. We are in more danger than we've been during my career of losing control of inflation in the United States. And he said the problem is even worse in Europe. So, uh, Jim, I don't know how many people in this administration are listening to Larry Summers either. We see the inflation numbers, though. The last few months, they've been in... uh, Territory we haven't seen since, I I think, the financial crisis. So um, not good, and there doesn't seem to be any any solutions. And so while other nations are actually focusing on, you know, national security and and, uh, getting their economies upright, we're focused on on the social justice issues here in the United States, including the, the gender agenda, which the Biden administration rolled out last week. So how much credit does Larry Summers deserve here for this verbal smackdown of his own team? A considerable amount. And I'm going to take readers back all the way to February 4th of this year, an op-ed that Larry Summers wrote in the Washington Post. And before we go any further, we should point out, you and I do not always agree with Larry Summers. The man is a Democrat. He's going to generally see things from the left side of of the, the perspective. But he is also a guy who's very plugged into the world of business, very plugged into the world of Uh, how the economy is actually working. And generally, he frustrates Democrats by telling them they can't get everything they want immediately. And in some cases, they can't get what they want ever. And just going to take you back to that February op-ed where Larry Summers writes, while there are are enormous uncertainties, there is a chance that macroeconomic stimulus on a scale closer to World War II levels than normal recession levels will set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation with consequences for the value of the dollar and financial stability. Now, we wasn't talking about Build Back Better. 
He was talking about the COVID relief package that was done uh, very very early in the uh, administration of, of, of President Biden. Now, here we are in, it's almost Halloween, it's, it's towards late October. That looks pretty prescient. That looks like that warning about, hey, you know, this is not really just transitory inflation. We need to pay attention to this. Um, we could be dumping far too much money into the economy. That that sounds pretty plausible in light of what we know now. And oh, by the way, back in July, Larry Summers is making this point and he was, you know, starting to clash with uh, Janet Yellen and kept emphasizing, well, every month we've seen so far, you know, August, September, Larry Summers has been beating the drum all year saying inflation's not transitory. You're really you know, uh, reaching a high risk point. You got to focus on this. And the Biden administration, by and large, has been saying, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to go away. It's transitory. It's transitory. Well, how many consecutive months do you need to see before it's, oh, okay, maybe this isn't transitory. If it was supposed to be gone by now, then it's not really transitory. So is it bad? On the one hand, what he's describing, the idea of this woke Federal Reserve, that, that's very ominous and unnerving. But if indeed, you know, Larry Summers is noticing this, you know that he's not the only Democrat. He's just the only Democrat who's willing to stick his neck out right now. And I think you're going to see a pushback from the uh, pro-business aspect of the Democratic Party. I know people scoff that it's there, but look, you know, the whole Mike Bloomberg's of the world. Um, I know Tim Geithner, apparently Democrats like to pretend they never heard this guy and he never, you know, like, look, there are a lot of people in the business world who are themselves kind of woke, but who don't like seeing the economy tank and you're going to start seeing some pushback on this. So uh, Larry Summers sounds like he can't get any louder in his cries about inflation. And then, you know, um, the more Democrats say to Democrat, the more Democrats say to Biden administration, you can't ignore this any longer, the more likely it is they will suddenly recognize this and maybe start to have second thoughts about massive spending uh, programs. Well, exactly right. And it goes back to, uh, I think, an interesting uh, point in the uh, in the story from The Washington Times is that the goal of the central bank, if you even like the central bank, is to ensure maximum employment and price stability. I'm not sure how racial equity and climate change <laughs> fit into that, other than the fact that those ideologies now just invade everything. So my colleague, Charlie Cook, likes to make the observation that like, if you look at the way progressives talk, they will say things like abortion is an economic equality issue. Russian disinformation is an economic, is a environmental issue. Or like they just take all these concepts of, of the liberal progressive intersectional and they insist they all go together, which makes it very tough if you're like, you know, let's say you believe in progressivism in one area, but maybe you're pro-life or maybe you're um, skeptical of some of the uh, you know, you're, you're pro-free market or, or you have certain aspects of they really don't let you deviate from the orthodoxy too much. And if you do, you're part of the enemy in part because, you know, the environmentalism is an abortion issue and gay rights is an economic issue. And they, they, they have this completely, you know, this world in which all these issues interconnect where you're not allowed to deviate from the thinking on any of them. And if you do very quickly, you get, you know, a targeted enemy and they go after you. I'm sure you know, there are a lot of progressives who believe that Larry Summers is the root of all evil because he, you know, tells them they can't get what they want. <laughs> well, that's how they've treated cinema. That's how they've treated mansion. Anybody that uh, tries to inject the slightest bit of reality kind of gets that treatment. So take some courage to say it. So uh, good for Larry Summers on saying that. But uh, let's talk about our first great sponsor today, Fast Growing Trees. The last time we talked about Fast Growing Trees, we had just gotten our box of new Fast Growing Trees. We 
had a fig tree, a monstera, uh, a lemon tree, and I'm proud to say, Jim, all three still living. Not only are they living, uh, despite my lack of any green thumbs or any other digits, but uh, they're also thriving. The monstera is right next to me as I speak, and I can see the leaves of the fig tree and the, the lemon tree. No lemons yet. Takes a couple years to get there, but uh, we love having them in the house. They uh, definitely brighten up the rooms, and uh, one day, one day we'll have lemons and as a Greek person, of course, I'm really excited about that. So uh, whenever you're looking for ways to upgrade uh, your plants in your house or or your shrubbery outside, fast-growing trees the way to go. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, which is the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines or messy cars or digging through a lackluster selection. You just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants, all expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. So whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees like Greg, or just you want to add color to your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system, which means it's ready to explode with new growth come spring. There is a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and your yard, and that's fastgrowingtrees.com. Fall is planting season, and don't let anybody tell you different. So join more than 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, the 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. And now through November 30th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com martini for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com martini. Again, fastgrowingtrees.com martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about the latest on where we stand with reconciliation. And we know that all the attention is on Joe Manchin. Talk about him in the next martini. Uh, Kirsten Cinema as well over in the Senate. But, you know, there's a pretty narrow Democratic majority in the House of Representatives as well. We don't talk about it a lot. Nancy Pelosi insists she's got the votes for it. And she probably does. But uh, she can really only afford to lose about three votes from her side, assuming all Republicans are there and vote against it. But now it looks like she's down to a margin of two because in an open letter to the legislative leadership in the state of Maine, Democratic Congressman Jared Golden has declared his opposition to the current form of the reconciliation package. Golden says in its current form, the draft bill is not sufficiently targeted to working and middle class families and makes too frequent use of budget gimmicks like artificial program sunsets or delayed starts. The consequences of these problems are twofold. First, the bill counterintuitively undermines its aim of rebalancing our tax and spending policies by doubling down on or newly investing in policies that would benefit some of the wealthiest households in America. Second, by relying on timing gimmicks to implement the policies in the bill, the proposal makes working families the targets of yet more congressionally manufactured cliffs, all while obscuring the true costs of program expansions if they were extended through the full 10-year budget window. And so he's uh, saying he's not even... Planning to vote for it at this point, who knows what Mansion and Cinema may negotiate it down to? Maybe he'll get back on board. But of course, you've got uh, you know at least a ha- that handful of moderates, uh, Jim, that uh, won't vote for reconciliation until the infrastructure bill is voted on. And of course, you got the progressives who won't vote on infrastructure until the reconciliation bill is passed. So, in addition to uh, head counting, there's the whole logistics game in the House. So this could be a little bit more interesting than we previously thought. 
Yeah, look, I don't want to get people's hopes up too high with this. And, and, you know, my guess would be that in the end, the House progressives don't want to be the ones who stood between uh, President Biden and a major legislative accomplishment in his first year. My guess is eventually they're going to fold. And the only thing that's left to debate is, you know, what are they going to fold on? How much is this going to be, you know, cost? What's the numbers in the final bill? What programs are in there or not? Uh, kind of foreshadowing our next martini here. But all things considered, the deal isn't done until the deal is done. And that the more progressives are starting to, you know, uh, you know sound like they're going to object to this. And, and we do recognize that they, that, you know, Nancy Pelosi just doesn't have a lot of margins for this. There aren't going to be any House Republicans who are willing to cross the aisle and say, oh, OK, we'll help you pass this massive giant spending bill. Well, maybe they don't get it. Maybe they do have three or four, uh, you know, progressive House Democrats who can hold everything up. I don't think it's going to, you know, end up tanking the whole thing. But it's not over till the fat lady sings. And so this is when I guess you could say the deal gets to be uh, most delicate when, you know, the, the it's re- dawning on progressives. They're not going to get everything they want. Now, the question is, how many of their priorities do they get? And does somebody just decide to fold their arms? And are they convinced that basically this turns into a game of chicken? That the more time goes by, the more the Biden administration, the more that uh, really in the end, it sounds like Manchin and Cinema and the other Democrats who aren't on board with all this spending, the more they'll say, oh, OK, fine, we'll give it to you. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to shake out that way. I think the House progressives are going to have to end up swallowing uh, a lot of stuff they didn't want to swallow and not get a lot of what they wanted to get out of this deal. It's still a massive spending bill, so they should be pretty unhappy with this. But um, the more tensions we see, and you know, we're going blowing past all of the deadlines they had set for themselves, um, I think I was, there's a sneaking suspicion that maybe the whole thing falls apart, or even then, the more time they're spending on this is the less time they can spend on any other priority. Yeah, my fear here is that they're going to create all these new programs and you know fund them for a year or two, and so they're all going to get created but they're going to leave it to future Congresses to keep them going because we know once they exist, they're very hard to kill. So I, I fear that that's how they're going to try and uh, weasel the price tag down here. But given what we said in the first martini, you'd like to think that there's be at least a handful of Democrats thinking, huh, look at all the inflation that uh, got injected into the economy here because of a $1.9 trillion supposedly COVID stimulus bill from earlier in the year. Now, even if we weasel this down to, you know, two trillion dollars or even a little bit less than that, we're still looking at three trillion when you combine the two bills. So, I mean, that's just going to set things off way worse than they already are. Yeah. And by the way, there's one I was listening to mentioned uh, uh, Kevin Hassett and my colleagues discussing last Friday. One of the points that I think was Ramesh Panuru made, which is a, is a very good one. Our, our attitude is, ah, you know, once you create a federal program, it never get, it never goes away. And we're left spending this money forever. But there is one kind of wrinkle to it, which is that it's one thing if the money, if the federal program is created and it's just automatically in the appropriations process of each year, well, then, yeah, then you're really, there's really almost no chance. But if it has to be affirmatively voted upon to continue by a Republican Congress, the odds of that actually expiring and not being renewed is actually pretty likely. And if you think, oh, no, 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 once liberals get something, they don't, you know, look at the, um, the assault weapons ban. You know, their, their belief was, oh, no, no, it's OK. We'll do it for 10 years. And then 10 years down the road, we'll renew it for another 10 years. Well, actually, the problem is Republicans control the House at that point. And they're like, eh, no, we don't want to do that. And so you're going to there is a chance that some of these programs that do get created if this bill gets passed may expire a few years down the road. And a potential, you know, if those Republicans have control of one house, they can either not renew it or they probably can um 
uh, or you know, if they feel real pressure to renew it, they may be able to extract other concessions on other policy issues. So not, um, you know, not ideal, but it's also a possibility that maybe these programs aren't going to last forever the way the prog- progressives are hoping. Well, is your head spinning because of all the back and forth and how big or how small or what's in or what's out is happening with this legislation or anything else? Well, you're probably not alone. Maybe Headspace can help. You know, if your thoughts are running in endless circles in your minds or with the stresses of the last year, uh, you know, it's just more important to practice healthier living as much as possible. So what if a few minutes uh, could really change your relationship with stress and anxiety? Well, then it might be time to give Headspace a try. Our thoughts can be confusing enough, but meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it easy to catch your breath and take some time for your own mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. One study proved that in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. We've talked about Headspace a lot on here. I've mentioned that uh, our chief of operations has told me that several different hosts at uh, Radio America uh, throughout the pandemic and beyond have used Headspace and uh, they found themselves sleeping better, uh, better focused, uh, less stress, uh, definitely made a difference. And uh, Rob Long, who has guest hosted uh, on this podcast, mentioned uh, not that long ago that he uses Headspace. Uh, You know, it's just five minutes, 10 minutes, uh, very short, kind of helps him get refocused and can make a big difference in how the rest of your day unfolds. And so, Find some Headspace at headspace.com slash martini and get one month free of the entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer, so go to headspace.com slash martini today. Again, headspace.com slash martini. Jim, I think you need Headspace just to keep up with where Joe Manchin is on uh, reconciliation. He's all over the place. Yesterday, we were talking about how he's getting excited maybe about the wealth tax and uh, uh, soaking the rich, quote unquote, based on unrealized capital gains, you know, profits you didn't actually make. But uh, he's also making noise about a provision that we don't like and his uh, staunch opposition to it, at least at the moment. Eric Wasson of Bloomberg reporting, quote, Joe Manchin clarifies to me that he opposes the bank reporting issue no matter what the threshold, quote, no one should be in anyone's bank account. So this is the issue of the IRS allegedly being able to uh, get data on any account with $600 or more dealing in transactions of $600 or more. They've allegedly rewritten that to a threshold of $10,000, but Manchin making it clear that he's opposed to that in any way, shape, or form. And obviously they would need Joe Manchin's uh, support to get that through. So that's his position today. We don't know exactly where it will be on another given day, but uh, Jim, If Democrats being in control are ultimately going to get something done here, getting nothing done would obviously be the best. But since it's Democrats in control of everything here, you got to think they're going to try to save face and get something done. And so even though we're not going to like it, the next best thing, which is far worse than than getting nothing done, is to uh, whittle out and water down as much as humanly possible. And so if Manchin can keep getting things like this yanked, if he can, um, well, that's better than where we were not too long ago. You know, Greg, there are a lot of days we might as well just wake up and say, what does President Manchin feel like today? <laughs> and, you know, again, this is, you know, uh, if there, he is, you know, a, a Democrat, which means in the end, he's probably fine with a good portion of spending. But he also has talked about the dangers of inflation. And he is probably the most conservative Democrat, certainly on the cultural issues. Um, and he certainly seems at least somewhat wary 
of spending on a large enough scale. Maybe not the way you and I would like, maybe not, uh, you know, the way, um, you know, the, the, the typical conservative Republican would, but probably pretty good in terms of the uh, over, you know, again, the reason we're not getting a five trillion bill, the reason we're not getting a six trillion bill is because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And I was just kind of thinking about, we were, you know, I'm going to say heartbroken. We were really, really frustrated when the Democrats won both of the Senate races in Georgia in the runoff elections. Ended up with a 50-50 split. Kamala Harris breaks the tie. And uh, that's how you end up in a situation where, you know, you have Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer instead of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And almost none of this would be considered a possibility if, uh, if you know, Mitch McConnell was still Senate Majority Leader. That said, I was thinking about, think about how important every single one of these Senate elections in 2020 were in the sense of think about how important it was that Susan Collins beat Sarah Gideon. Um, by the way, think about how much better our lives would be if John James had managed to beat Gary Peters. But, you know, you can go down the list of, uh, you know, Jason Lewis came within five percentage points of Tina Smith in Minnesota. Um, there were not a ton of uh, really competitive ones where we could go, ooh, you know, other than the Georgia ones. I'm actually thinking about, I think how lucky we are that Tom Tillis beat Cal Cunningham. In other words, if Democrats had come into this cycle with 52 uh, Senate seats, they could say to Joe Manchin, we don't care if you vote for this or not. They could say to Kirsten Sinema, we don't care if you vote for this or not. And they'd have those other 50 votes and they'd be able to get pretty much, if not everything on the Bernie Sanders wish list, then a whole bunch of it. As it is now, as I joked at the beginning, Joe Manchin is you know, kind of quasi-Senate majority leader or kind of quasi-president. He has the final say. Well, he and you know, Kirsten Sinema have teamed up to basically be the ones who get final veto power. And Democrats are gnashing their teeth and they're sending trackers after Kirsten Sinema and they're chasing her into the bathroom. This is the reality of a 50-50 Senate. Anybody can say no and tank the whole thing. Welcome to politics. Welcome to the way the Senate works. You have to learn to deal with it. And a good portion of the year of 2021 has been progressives like kicking and screaming and fuming and doing everything possible. They just can't believe it. They just, you know, and just having to recognize the fact that in a 50-50 Senate, the most conservative Democrat is going to set the size of the bill. That's Manchin and Cinema. And that's the way it is. And, you know, from the perspective of you and I, it's still a lot more spending than we'd like to see. But again, if one or two Senate races had gone even worse for Republicans in the last cycle, things could have been much, much worse. No, absolutely right. Uh, Eric Wasson also reporting that Manchin's still trying, not uh, saying he's going to, you know, not move at all, but still trying for a one and a half trillion dollar top line. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, We had no crazy martini today, Jim, but I just want to throw this in there because I thought this was fascinating. I don't know if this is a math error or what, but this is crazy. A new USA Today's Suffolk University poll out on the Virginia governor's race. Uh, McAuliffe is up by 0.4%, 45.6% to 45.2%. But according to the poll, Glenn Youngkin leads among men 58 to 32, and McAuliffe leads among women 59 to 33. So, I mean, I've seen big gender gaps before, but man, that is massive. That is massive. The other thing is you think about like we, we had big gender gaps in most of the uh, elections of the Trump era, right? That, you know, that the yeah. Republicans became an even more male party, Democrats. You kind of might have wondered, oh, OK, well, you know, young kid is not certainly he's not a Trump candidate. Um, he's not running from Trump. He's not running to Trump. He's really trying to walk the tightrope there. Uh, and that but that phenomenon is changing. And one of the interesting things, the other thing I'd love to say, and I have to you know, go into these polls Again, there's only one poll that matters and all that stuff. But I'd be really interested if there is a split between 
uh, married women and single women mm-hmm. and women who are mothers and women who are not considering Glenn Youngkin's really big emphasis on school issues. And in, in the last couple of uh, weeks of this campaign, I would be surprised at that. So the, the gender gap might be um, really huge, but I'm willing to bet that within men and women, you're going to see some really big divisions, most notably amongst whether they're married, whether they have kids going to school and things like that. Yeah, the married versus single women has definitely been a big divide in, in previous elections. I did see another poll showing that among parents of K-12 to students, Yunkin's up 56-39. So um, I don't know how big of a percentage that is of the Virginia electorate, but uh, he's making traction in that demographic for sure. The question is whether it'll be enough. So it's a dead heat. McCullough's essentially the incumbent candidate. He's not officially the incumbent, obviously, but if he's at 45 as the incumbent a week out, got a chance. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you people know you and they don't really like you. <laughs> anyway, that is it for today. Hope you enjoyed all the good martinis. Jim, we'll do it again tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Always appreciate those. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Finally, follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday, and please join us again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.